Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servants, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now these are the Ten Commandments, the moral law. I will say this just in initially the beginning, that it's worth noting, I had a conversation with my mom before she passed away a few months back, and we were talking about the word of God and the things of Jesus, and we talked about the Ten Commandments, and she said to me, well, you know, the Ten Commandments are these Ten Commandments. I was like, well, wait a second, that's, that's not the same Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments. It's like, no, it is. So we literally pulled out uh, the Bible, and Technically, they're there, but if you were raised Catholic and you were raised on the Ten Commandments, you would see the Ten Commandments here, but if you are raised Protestant or Evangelical, you'd see the Ten Commandments with a slightly different thing. And I would want to point this out. For Catholics in the Ten Commandments, they don't recognize commandment number two, that you'll have no idols or imageries of me. If you didn't know that, you should know. That's worth noting. They combine that with the first commandment, you'll have no gods before me. So they kind of merge one and two together, and they skip that, so this the... Lord's name in vain is the second commandment of the Catholic Ten Commandments. Where they pick up their tenth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife is number nine, and you shall not covet your neighbor's goods, which is number ten. So it's interesting because in the Protestant Ten Commandments, the second commandment is no images or idols. And the tenth commandment that we have, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods, we combine the neighbor's wife, the neighbor's product, the neighbor's success, and all those things. It's it's. To me, it's interesting, and my, my mom and I, we were both kind of right in our own way, and I said, well, depending on how you do it, that's the way it is. But these are the Ten Commandments, and we know in the New Testament, we're told through the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul that we don't keep these Ten Commandments, this moral law. These, none of us can keep these perfectly. Now, we certainly want to aspire to live a life that reflects this in our relationship vertically with God and vertically with our parents, because the first five are vertical relationships, and then the back five, we want to keep them as well in honoring our neighbors and respecting others. Now, we're told in the book of Romans that the law is fulfilled in this, that you love your neighbors yourself. Now, that deals with the back five commandments. So the ones that are horizontal, not to steal, not to murder, not to lust, and all these things, those are horizontal, human to human. But we're told in the New Testament that if you just love your neighbor, 
That's the, that's the law of liberty, the law of love, that you will fulfill the Ten Commandments. So nowhere in the New Testament are we told, keep these Ten Commandments and you'll be saved and you might go to heaven. We are told that Jesus fulfilled the law and kept these commandments perfectly, and he fulfilled it morally perfectly. And he expounded these Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, in Matthew's Gospel, and also the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. But then the civil law, which deals with societal laws, he was the perfect citizen, and the religious law, he fulfills it because the Passover lamb, the burnt offering, the sin offering, all that, those feasts, they all point to Jesus Christ. Jesus literally fulfills the law. So when I look at the Ten Commandments, I go like, wow, this is beautiful. What an, um, what an incredible moral standard to live your life by. But it's not possible in the flesh to do this. In fact, we'll see later on in this chapter that when you build an altar to the Lord, you won't use a tool because it will reveal your nakedness. So any human effort to do a work that pleases God is revoked by God. For by the works of the flesh, human effort, no one will be justified before God. That is, human effort to save ourselves by keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly. Because to come short of one part of the law is to fail the whole law. So we talk about this. The Ten Commandments is a pass-fail. It's not like I got a 99 on a test out of 100, and out of 100 things in my life, I fulfilled 99 of the law, and I'm an A-plus student. It's all or nothing. It's perfection or failure. It's a pass-fail, and you have to get it all right. And we know that by the works of the law, no flesh, no human being has ever been nor will ever be justified before God. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, we know that we cannot keep these as some type of false assurance that God has to accept us and we're going to go to heaven. In fact, we're told that God's a debtor to no one. So it's not like we can say, God, like you live 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, or 80 years, that you would stand before God when you step into eternity like, oh, Lord, here I am. I was a good person. I kept your law perfectly. And you think even to the rich young ruler when he said, all these I've done since my youth. And Jesus said, well, one thing you lack go sell everything and give it away to the poor. And and he's like, he went away ashamed because there's always one thing we lack because we're told to be guilty of one part of the law of transgression is guilty of all. So we're all at best 99 out of 100, at worst zero out of 100. We're just scoundrels and evil people. But it's a pass-fail and we all fail. But Jesus fulfilled this. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, he's the perfect sacrifice for our sins because he fulfilled the law. And again, the Son of God, without the sin nature of humanity, as the second Adam, like the first Adam, he has no sin nature to begin with. And he fulfills the law perfectly. But then, when we put our trust in him for dying for our sins, God imputes to us his righteousness. So through faith, we have this positional righteousness as if we kept this law perfectly, these Ten Commandments. When God looks at us through our faith in Jesus Christ, even this night, this day, myself and those who are watching this, He sees us as fulfilling the law perfectly, the Ten Commandments, even as Jesus did. It's reckoned, or we're told, imputed to our account. So like, wow, like I fall way short. I might be be getting a C minus on this or or an A plus, but I'm still not 100%. But whatever we fall short, Christ fulfilled, and it is imputed and reckoned to our account. So we pass from condemnation to justification because when it comes to the law, God sees us perfect. Because he sees us through the glasses of looking at his son first before he looks at us. In him, we have salvation by grace. You've been saved that through faith, not of works, lest we should boast. If we could keep this, we could boast. And then we're told, but God's the debtor to no man. That he might be the justifier of those who are justified. 
So it's by faith in Jesus who kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, by which we're declared righteous as having kept them, even to this day. Now, our practical righteousness goes up and down. Look at COVID-19 and the stay at home. We've been staying at home for eight, nine weeks now. Maybe you had a couple of good COVID-19 days. You're like, wow, that was a good day. Uh, great time with the Lord. It's like on top of a mountain. But maybe you have some bad COVID-19 days where you're just melting down and you're frustrated and angry and agitated. Like I think I can say for all of us, if we're honest, during COVID-19, we maybe had like mountaintops, high mountaintops and deep valleys because I've had both. But that's practical righteousness. It's not positional righteousness. Practical righteousness, a good day at COVID-19. Hey, it's a good day for the Lord to come back because I'm a good person today and I can stand before him because I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. Practical righteousness, it's a bad day with COVID-19. I've been a naughty son of Adam and the Lord comes back today. It's a bad day and I can't stand before him because I haven't kept the Ten Commandments. Well, that's up and down, but that's not how we're justified. We're justified because Jesus kept this and it's imputed to us. So whether we had a high, low mark on any given day during COVID-19, stay at home. If the Lord comes back, we're justified through faith in him. And this is reckoned to our account perfection that Jesus did in keeping these 10 commandments morally on our behalf. It doesn't change. In fact, we're told we have eternal life now. Eternal life isn't something you get tomorrow when you breathe your last. Eternal life is present tense in God's economy. Sure, we're walking in this declared righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ and keeping the 10 commandments. But as I said earlier, these Ten Commandments are lived out by the Holy Spirit in our life. And as we abide in the Lord, as we abide in Christ, and the fruit of the Spirit comes forth from our life, these are things that we'll naturally do because they're consistent with the character of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. So as we're going from glory to glory, as 1 Corinthians says, we're going to see more of this type of lifestyle, holiness vertically toward the Lord, reverence, and humility and respect and love and honor for the humanity around us, we're going to see these things as we are walking in a spirit-filled life. But it doesn't justify us. It's the overflow of our justification. It's not something we're earning. It's something that's overflowing from us as we're abiding. Also, another thing about the Ten Commandments, we are told that the Ten Commandments, that the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. Ray Comfort is well known for doing evangelism, street evangelism, and his hallmark of street evangelism in dealing with people that are very hostile toward the gospel or nominal or moderate is he will talk to someone and he'll have this conversation where they think they're going to heaven or whatever based upon good works and they'll ask him, have you ever lied, you ever cheated, you ever stole? And he, and he builds his case like you're a lying, cheating, murderous, adulterous human being. And so he, he makes them aware of their guilt and he does it through the law. Ray Comfort in his evangelism uses the Ten Commandments to show that we're all guilty, which is exactly what Galatians chapter 3 tells us. It's our tutor to bring us to Christ. So the more we look at the Ten Commandments, the more we become aware of our sinful nature and realize we cannot save ourselves through morality and good works, but we must be saved through faith in Jesus Christ who fulfilled this and imputes this righteousness to us through faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, in Romans chapter 3, where we're told that all sin falls short of the glory of God, we are told that the law tells us, stop talking. In any boasting that we might have, we're told in Romans chapter 3, that when we really look at the Ten Commandments, we don't go like, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm going to stand before the Lord. They tell us, hey, shut your mouth and bow the knee, and you better find another way to be saved, because you're not going to earn this. You're going to receive this through Christ, who did fulfill this. Very important with the Ten Commandments, that we have that biblical context of the whole counsel of God looking at the Ten Commandments. Well, now that being said, when we look at the Ten Commandments, 
the first five are vertical. So the first one is no gods before the Lord, obviously. And there are no other gods. There are no other gods. The Bible makes that very clear. In Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord God. There are no others. There's no other gods. There's fallen demons. There's Satan and demonic entities that are very powerful that might be worshipped because we're told in the New Testament that when people make offerings to idols, they're worshipping demons that are behind those idols. So even as people might be into forms of paganism or false worship or whatever, and there was you know, the god of mammon and the god of war and all these sorts of things, we know that for the lust of humanity that people might worship and bow down to directly or indirectly, that gods, if you will, were created in times past in the biblical civilizations that were worshipped. Like Moloch was the god that people offered their children to. So quite often, when we talk about abortion clinics and people giving up and committing infanticide, we say that they're offering, they're making offerings to the god Moloch. That's that comparison. But people at Planned Parenthood would never say, oh, we're worshipping Moloch. But they're doing the same thing that people did 2,000, 3,000 years ago, worshiping Molech, just so you know. But we're told biblically that there are demons behind false gods. So any world religion with other gods, and there's many other gods, they aren't gods. They're demons. That's objectively what the Bible says about that. So no gods before the Lord, because there are no other gods. The gods that people worship other than the Lord Jesus Christ, they are false gods, Demonic entities and ideologies are behind them. And whether it's atheism, agnosticism, communism, any godless worldview, secularism, th those are gods. Those are false gods. And the Lord's like, there's no other gods. You, all, you can't harmonize the, the God of creation and order and design with the God of disorder and chaos of Darwin, right? Like, it's just, they, they, they're not compatible. It just doesn't work that way. I am the Lord, and there is no other, God says, many times in the word, but particularly through the, uh, the prophet Isaiah in those 40s chapters. He also says, the second commandment is that you'll make no carved images. So there's no images of God. Now, we want to make images of God, and of course, in many world religions, like particularly Hinduism, there's all kinds of images of gods. I remember going to Bali and seeing all the Hindu gods' carvings that you find at stores and trinkets and the little shopping outlet places and stuff, and it is what it is, but we don't make images of God. Now, obviously, it's difficult with, like, a children's Bible, like, you're drawing Jesus, so you have an idea what Jesus looks like, and, but we don't really know. It's very interesting that there's no descriptions of Jesus. There are descriptions of Saul, the first king of Israel. There's descriptions of David, the second king of Israel. There's descriptions of different people in the Bible, but there's no descriptions of Jesus. Like, there's nothing. So, any image that we conjecture of Jesus it just, it is what it is. Like, we're just speculating. So when you watch any movie like The Greatest Story Ever Told made in the 60s or uh, The Passion of Christ with Mel Gibson made, it's like, it's just, it's just an actor, but we don't really know. Like, you could say, well, he was Middle Eastern. He was, of course, Hebrew. So we look at the genetic line of Hebrews and the ethnicity of Jews, but we don't know. It's tricky. Now, I mentioned earlier how the Catholics don't believe in commandment number two that the Protestants do, no images and idols. And you might say, well, they, they're the ones that always have images and idols. They worship the Virgin Mary and these saints and these things like that. But in, in when we see that, it's interesting because you ever have this conversation with Catholics, they'll tell you they're not worshiping idols. They'll tell you it's like interceding. So like when I ask Sam to pray for me, Sam, can you pray for me? Or Sam, we're going to pray for 
Luke's you know, recovery from the surgery or whatever, you're talking to me and you ask me to pray for you. Well, Catholics, when they look at idols and stuff like that, or saints, that's how they look at it. They would never, I've never found a Catholic yet, and haven't been raised Catholic, that say, well, yeah, of course we're praying to idols. You know, it's an idol. They think like, no, I'm calling Chris's mom and asking her to pray for this situation. And so it's kind of semantic sometimes, but, you know, let God be true and every man a liar. I just point that out. I just tell you, no idols in your house, okay? (laughs) I have a trophy that I won in Bali back in 1982, and it's like this Hindu-looking God thing. I was like, no, I hate that trophy. I gave it to my, it's been at my mom's house for 30 years. When my mom passed away, I said, Phil, you take it. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) you know, that was second place in a world tour surfing event. I was like, yeah, I just didn't like that, you know, it's bad juju or whatever, right? Speaking of false gods, but no. So no, no idols. Then not to take the Lord's name in vain. And isn't it interesting, like we, no one ever curses like Buddha or Muhammad and things like that. Like in the sense of, in our Western culture, people curse the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's just, it is what it is. And it's just affirmation that he's God because the devil's not interested in you cursing other false gods. He's interested in cursing Jesus Christ, the true God, the son of God. So no cursing, no using the Lord's name in vain. It's, isn't it grievous too, like as you grow in the Lord, when you hear people like, you just like, ah, like you start to watch a movie, it seems like it could be okay, and all of a sudden they use the Lord's name in vain, you're like, oh, really? Then they use it again, like, why did they do this? Like, why did the script writers do this? It's like, we're done. We just wasted four ninety nine on, you know, Amazon Prime, because it's just, that's it, you're done. If I have to get that at work, I have to get that at work, but I don't, I'm not going to pay, pay to get it, but if, you know, like, it's like, you don't know, and you're like, okay, it is what it is, but we don't, we don't like that. We don't like hearing the Lord's name in vain. Then the fourth commandment is the Sabbath, to honor and keep it holy. Now, the Sabbath is a unique commandment for Israel because it was a sign of their covenant. And a couple things that we see about the Sabbath here. The first thing that we see about the Sabbath is that it's a literal day. Like he says in verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, they held in him, and they rested on the seventh day. This is very strong argument for the position of, obviously, what the Bible teaches, creation, that God made the world in six days. There's no theistic evolution that God somehow worked through evolution, and there's no science to support that whatsoever, that he worked through eons and ages, and and the destructive elements that Darwinism is based upon anyways is totally contrary to the character of God and what he declares about himself in creating the universe in the first place in Genesis 1 and 2. But right here, it's like, it's days. It's literal days. This word can only mean days in the Hebrew, and that's what it means. And the whole reason the Jews had the seventh day off is because the, the Lord God himself made the universe in six days, and he rested the seventh day. So even in their covenant, what they had with God for 1,500 years, that seventh day was an affirmation to them that the Lord God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, and to acknowledge him on the seventh day. Seven literal days God made the universe. And trust me, for all those who don't think that, because there's a lot of people who don't think that, when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, you will know it's seven literal days. I'm sure of it. He's affirmed it to me in my relationship with them. I've never believed that. The, the lies of Darwinism and the fruit of Darwinism, I reject wholeheartedly. It's a godless worldview that well-intended men try and merge with the creation order. They're, they're just not compatible at all to the character of God or science, real science, true science, all that. It's ridiculous. So six days, we should see that. That the Sabbath itself for the Jews is an affirmation of creation with design and order. God doesn't need more than six days to make things. And if he calls for a seventh day of rest for himself and says it for his people covenant, then that's what he says. That's it. He's the Lord. It's his universe. He calls it the way he wants to. We also see that in the New Testament, the church is never under the Sabbath. It, it, the Sabbath was a sign of the covenant between Israel and God in their, in their relationship covenant. 
That was very unique to Israel. Nowhere in the New Testament do you ever see the church practicing the Sabbath. Not in the book of Acts historically, not in the epistles uh, practically, instructionally, nor in the pastoral epistles for pastors and leaders leading the flock. It's never there. But in fact, we're actually told that one man esteems one day, another another, let each be convinced in their own mind. We're also told in the historical record that the church met on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, because that's the remembrance of the Lord's resurrection from the grave. There are some well-intended people, I think, who confess Christ and absolutely insist that you go to church on Saturday because the church somehow has a Sabbath. It's not true. That's not correct. Because the Sabbath also speaks to us what we could not do, save ourselves, and we're told that Christ is our Sabbath rest, that he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So they said to Jesus, what is the work that we can do to please God? And he said, believe in the one whom the Father sent. That is the work that pleases him. Christ is our rest. That's why he says, come to me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We're never, ever contextually in the New Testament, from the Matthew 1, 1 to the last verse of Revelation, ever put under the Sabbath in the church. In fact, it's completely contrary to that. So of the Ten Commandments affirmed in the New Testament, you never have the Sabbath reaffirmed for the church. But, is it, but nonetheless, obviously, there's great wisdom in taking the seventh day off. I do think the principle is there, but it's not justifying us, and it's not a sign of the covenant. Our sign of the covenant is water baptism and communion. Their sign of the covenant was the Sabbath, honor it, keep it holy, and don't take your donkey outside for a walk or pick up sticks. But ours is communion, fellowship, Take this bread, my body. Take this cup, my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant. And the new covenant makes obsolete the old covenant. And again, the law is the old covenant for Israel. And we're told in Hebrews, we don't go backwards. We're going forward. Just like as a church, we're going forward. (laughs) We're going forward from COVID-19. We're not going back to February 2020. We're moving forward to June, July, August 2020. Everything with the Lord is forward. And there's no other covenants to come. We're in the new and everlasting covenant. And we're going forward forward. That's important to understand, too. Never in the church. And we're also told in Colossians, don't let anyone judge you regarding food or drink or Sabbaths. So if anyone ever tries to judge you for going to church on Sunday instead of Saturday, of course, you go to worship generation, so you are Saturday. It's a curveball in the equation. But if anyone ever tried to judge you for that, we're told that no one judge you for Sabbaths. Now, if you say that to someone who believes that we're under the Sabbath, they'll say that's the type of Sabbath that goes with the feasts and the holidays, the distinctive Sabbaths that were different than the regular weekly Sabbath. Uh, Blah, 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 blah. You know, like people that are just twisted, they're twisted. And Peter talked how they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And they put yokes of bondage on people that they themselves can't keep. And James himself said that in Acts chapter 15. Why are we going to put a yoke on people that we ourselves couldn't keep? So just don't ever go for that. Don't let everyone judge you that somehow the church should be under the Sabbath, that you're not obeying the Sabbath, and you're disobeying God. That's nonsense. It's unbiblical. It's not sound doctrine. And it's not rightfully dividing the scriptures of truth. So do not fall for that. Because God says, don't let anyone judge you in Sabbaths. And one man it seems one day, another another, and each be convinced in their own mind. Very important. Now, the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother, which we've talked about in times past, goes through different seasons. It looks like one thing when you're a toddler. It looks like another thing when you're an elementary age student. Junior high, middle school, high school, collegiate age. When you get married for this cause, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So it takes on a different look when you start your own family unit. But we should never stop honoring our father and mother. And the Lord has 
in recent years for me, taking care of my father, taking care of my mother, and even still accountable for my mom's estate, along with my wife Jennifer, and resolving things and stuff. You know, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of work. My mom's been gone for five months, and there's a lot to do. You, you know, it's, it's emotional. You get death certificates. You got final burials. We put my mom in, in her grave there in Cleveland. It's emotional, and it, 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 it rips your heart out, but you still got to turn in the rental, the lease car. You've got to file the tax returns. You got to pay for the writing on the cemetery block. It's just amazing the things that you got to do. And it, it's, it's a heavy heart when you do this. And many of you know what I'm talking about because when your parents deceased, you do this stuff. And what the Lord has shown me, I'm honoring my, my mom. I, my wife and I are honoring my mom in all that we do. That's what we're doing. And even recently having to put my mom's dog down just a few weeks ago because she was dying. The dog was 16, Daisy. And we actually thought the dog would pass before my mom did, but she didn't. And she managed, Daisy did really well after mom passed away. But when the day came that I had to put her down because she was in respiratory distress, and I just got up on that Monday and just said, and the week before I had to put down my dad's dog of 16 years. And that was honoring my dad. Goldie lived with us for a year, and that's how we honored my dad. We took care of Goldie, his dog of all those years. And Goldie was the one Monday, and Daisy was the next Monday. It's extremely difficult. But in putting Daisy down, I was like, well, I just can't believe this is back-to-back Mondays. And, you know, if you got to put your dog down, you don't sleep well the night before. If you've never known that, you'll find that out. If you, ever put, like, if you know the next day is that day, you just, don't, you, just, you, just, you don't sleep well. Like, it's just a heavy thing, especially when their dogs have been in the family for 16 years, and it's your mom's dog, and your mom is gone. But I just got up that morning. I thought, you know, Lord, this is what you called me to do this day. And I know mom would say, it's what you got to do. And my mom had to put a number of family dogs down, our dogs that we left with her, Greta, Stitches, others. And it's just, now it's my turn. And that was a really hard day, but that was honoring my father and my mother. Lord, you know my heart, and that was a hard thing to do. But it had to be done, and I just kept thinking, the Lord has put my heart, you're honoring your mother because she would not want to see Daisy suffering like this in respiratory distress and this has to be done. And this is what you have to do today. So even after your parents are gone, you might be honoring your father and mother in different ways that you don't even know. If you even are managing the estate with adult siblings and things aren't resolved or they get tricky or difficult, that might be a way you're honoring your father and your mother. You honor their memory as well, respectfully. If you've ever lost a parent, I'm sure you can agree with me, after they're gone, you realize, wow, I took my mom for granted. Like, why didn't I appreciate my mom more? Why didn't I visit her more? Why did I always kind of make fun of my mom? Like, just these silly things, and you, like, you want a rematch on it, but you don't get it. Like David said when he lost his son, he's not coming back, but I can go to him, and that's the best you got. So honor your father and mother. If they're alive, it's the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you in the land. And by the way, this one is reaffirmed in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, about family. It says, honor your father and mother that it may be well with you and you dwell in the land. So not only is this in the covenant for Israel, it's reaffirmed by the Lord for the church in the New Testament through the apostolic writings of Paul the Apostle to to, uh, Timothy, or excuse me, to the Church of Ephesus, as well as the Church of Colossians. But the emphasis is that that it may be well with you and you live long upon the land, as you see there in verse 12. So this is the Sabbath day and honor your father and mother. Now the back five, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not lie, and shall not covet your neighbor's goods. These are those five horizontal ones. We know that these five things are all affirmed by Jesus in the New Testament, that it's a matter of the heart. It's an inward thing of the heart before 
if you keep the heart pure, these things don't happen. But these actions are actually birthed within the heart. They're attitudes and thoughts that are embraced that become within our heart and they carry over into actions from there. He said, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder because hating someone is the prerequisite generally for murder. So these five deal with our relationship with other people morally. And we just, we got to forgive people. We need to love people. And people are not objects, but they're human beings created in the image of God for his glory and his purposes. And we want to build them up and encourage them. So these five, we just kind of put them together and they speak for themselves the most basic things that pretty much all societies recognize as being valid for the human experience in any society. In other words, even most societies, whether they're Judeo-Christian or not, they, they recognize that these five things, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, and coveting are bad. They're, they're just kind of in the moral consciousness of all humanity, really. And they are. Paul even alluded to that in Romans, in the book of Romans, about a law unto themselves in our own minds from what we know, in a sense, instinctively right or wrong. Now, we pick it up in verse 18. The people are afraid of God's presence, and we read this, that now all the people witnessed the thundering, the lightning, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. It's an interesting verse in the context here. This this is interesting, verse 20. Do not fear, for God's testing you that you may fear. <laughs> Don't fear in the wrong way, like a scary movie fear. Fear in a healthy way, like a reverent fear. Did you catch that? So it's important that we're not, we don't fear the Lord like he's impersonal and like a scary movie, a scary movie scene coming to get us. But we fear the Lord out of respect and honor of reverence. And we're told in the Proverbs the foundation of the entire book of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fools despise instruction, but wise people, it begins, wisdom begins with fear of the Lord, respect for the Lord. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this is why we teach our children to respect the Lord and respect their parents and to respect authority. If you raise your children properly, they're going to respect you as parents. They're going to respect the Lord and have a fear of the Lord that is a moral compass for them when they go away for college and do things, life on their own as adults. And it's going to also affect how they treat their superiors at work. It's just a, it's a compass, that reverence. The respecting the reverence of the Lord helps you. If you fear the Lord properly, you'll, you'll learn respect for other people. That's what the Bible says, even in First Peter, honor the king, respect all people. It's the, that principle carries over there. But Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So people are like, oh my goodness, how is Moses? He's just pressing into this dark cloud. It's like, whoo. You know, sometimes when you press into the Lord really close, like he'll show you things that are like, whoa. When the angel came to Daniel and showed him things, it was exasperating for Daniel. It was an emotional experience. But we need to have the mind of the Lord. And when we press into the Lord and he shows us different things, we need to pursue those things and we need to receive those things because that's, why he's showing us those things. It's, it's a good thing. Verse 22, Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. An altar of the earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. 
In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. This is what I alluded to earlier. There's no human effort in the, the altar that God gave them for sacrificing to him. It has to be of the earth. It's, there's no human effort allowed in this situation for the offering. And to violate that exposes nakedness. And I got to thinking about this. The more we try and save ourselves, the more naked and ashamed we should be before the Lord and aware of our flesh. Nakedness is, goes back to sin and the, and the consciousness of nakedness. When Adam and Eve sinned, they became aware of their nakedness. They were naked and unashamed without sin. And really, when we think that we're doing good, it really should just humble us and make us feel blucky and like want to be covered not in plant leaves, but in the covering that God provides through faith in Jesus Christ. So God also said, in every place where I record my name, I will come to you and bless you. And our God's a blessing God. We talked about that. Now we're going to read on here in chapter 21 because this begins the moral law, excuse me, the civil law. So let's look at this here for a minute. Chapter 21 has a couple interesting principles as we just press on tonight through Exodus. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he goes out by himself. If he comes in married, then he and his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she's born in sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. And he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children... I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. His master shall pierce his ear with the awl. That's that, you know, pokey, sharp bang. And he shall serve him forever. And this is where we get the idea of the bondservant. And we're actually called bondservants of Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That's how Paul and the apostles alluded to themselves as bondservants. And this was a choice. So, it's an interesting law, but if you were in a household and you ended up becoming like the son-in-law and you married the daughter and you had children, they, they're, they're under the, the master that way, which is interesting. I don't completely understand it, but that's the way it was. But if you came in by yourself and came in with your wife, you could go out that way. But if you did it the other way, then you couldn't, which just kind of shows, that, again, the value of family and unity and community of keeping things together. Like, this is actually an infrastructure within the law itself that brings, that holds people together. Humans tend to divide. The Lord tries to bring people together through faith before him and before his throne. Heaven is people together of all ethnicities before his throne and together. Hell is people separated by themselves in darkness apart from each other of all ethnicities as well. Isn't that interesting? We separate in our own little private hell and darkness with sin and imploding ourselves. But through faith, we press in and we become part of the, globe, the heavenly community that represents all ethnicities of human history upon the globe. Every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's, it's incredible. It's a beautiful thing. So this is bringing people together and maintaining a healthy fabric of a family unit in a biblical definition, too. Now, I did think of Jacob and his father-in-law with Laban because he left with the wives and the kids. But, you know... 
We know enough about, well, that precedes us, but we know enough about Laban, too, that he, uh, he did the bait and switch with the wives, too. So I think Laban disqualified himself for holding Jacob accountable for getting the earring because I, I think when you give him the wrong wife, that, that kind of all bets are off. I don't know. I'm just kind of saying that facetiously a little bit, but I did think of that. But that was 400 years before this in a different situation. Now we read on in verse 7. Now, if the man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who betrothed her to himself, in other words, she's like a wife, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. He'll treat his daughter-in-law like his own daughter. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marriage rights. And look at verse 11. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. This is really cool because this is God looking out for the interest of women and being their advocate and the defender of their rights. This is awesome. And this just shows how God is just. And this is really protecting women from being taken advantage of in any culture, let alone the cultures of the day that treated women like animals instead of human beings. Now, we know in the church age, we're told that there's neither male nor female, but we are one in Christ. So we have equal standing, both genders, before the Lord. Now, we know there's an order in the marriage, but that doesn't change the standing. Because the husband is the head of the bride, his wife, who represents the church, it doesn't mean he's superior. We know that. That's very clear. It just means he has the accountability this way, but it's making better. So all the push for gender equality, we already have it in Jesus' name. The church has it in Jesus' name. And we have the identity and the primary callings of the genders that God holds men accountable for and women accountable for. And when the men move toward that and fulfill that in the Lord, they're blessed. When women move toward that and fulfill that in the Lord, they're blessed. It's, it's not to be in God's will, his primary plans for us to be a woman is to be glorious before the Lord. And if you're a single woman, you're single and married to the Lord. To be a man, to be single, is to be married to the Lord, and it's glorious. So whether you're male or female, or married or single, we serve the Lord, but the one that's not married can serve the Lord in a greater capacity. That's what we're told in 1 Corinthians. These things are important to understand. God is for men. He's for women. He's for marriage. He's for children. He's for grandchildren. He's for the healthy, godly home and a healthy society. Verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hands, then I will appoint you a place where you may flee. Those are the cities of refuge. We'll get that later on as we go forward in these books of Moses. Verse 14, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him by my altar that he may die. You shall take him from my altar that he may die. He who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him or if he's found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or mother shall be put to death. So these are four capital punishment crimes for the nation of Israel under the law. And they are premeditated murder, which in many countries and states is even still capital punishment. Striking your father or your mother, look how important it is to respect, again, the authority that you grew up with in the home. I remember as a teenager in Carlsbad, one time I pushed my mom down. Uh, we were having an argument, and I pushed her, and she fell to the ground. I didn't think much of it at the time. I was about 16 or 17. Years later, when reading this text in Virginia Beach as a pastor, I read this text, and I thought, I should be executed. 
I should have been executed, but God was merciful. Think how serious this is. You're telling me premeditated murder and pushing, hitting your mom or dad is the same? Yeah. So honor your father and your mother and respect them and the position God's given them, whether they're good moms or bad moms or great dads or bad dads or whatever it might be. And then kidnapping. So just to take someone from their rights that they have is capital punishment. That's pretty serious. It's like if you carjack something, like that would be capital punishment in our modern society. And then, of course, uh, cursing your father and your mother. So just to even speak disrespect to your parents would be capital punishment. Wow. But when a society degenerates, it degenerates by removing these, these orders that are blessed by God. So again, you take like communist China, where you take the children from the parents and the state raises them. They have no respect for their parents. They have no respect for life. And it's not a healthy family unit the way God would design it. The state raises the children in a godless worldview, and you get what you get with Marxism, communism, and these things. It's, or even fascism, what Hitler did with the Nazi youth as well. It's a scary thing. The devil knows that if you remove the family fabric of a mother and a father in the home, and you strip that order that God has, that you can create complete disorder and change the society in less than one generation. That's why it's been so important for ministries like Focus on the Family with James Dobson and many others, American Freedom Alliance, all these ministries, to speak up for the godly model for a family unit because that's what God honors. He hasn't changed. Our society's changed. Our entire planet's changed concerning the family unit or as TV shows have like Modern Family or whatever. Whatever, there's one family model that God honors. And the rest of it, you're on your own. You know, like you can do what you want to do but let God be true and every man a liar. God has an order. This is his law. This is what he blesses. This is what he honors. God is light. Him is no darkness at all. If he says it's darkness, it's darkness. He hasn't changed. He created the universe. He spoke it into existence. And he did it in six days. It's just the way it is. We don't want to... We've got to value the family unit and value the roles of husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. Verse 18, if a man contends with each... If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, he does not die but is confined to his bed. If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according to as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if any harm follows, then he shall give his life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So again, that's the value of the unborn life, that is capital punishment to take the life of the unborn child. This is a biblical model where you have capital punishment for taking the life of a child in the womb. It's important to know that one. And life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, you shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. If he knocks out his tooth of his male or female servant, you shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. Now, it's, I'm like, wow, like, I kind of think my eye is more important than a tooth, right? But obviously, God's designed the human body, and whether it's molars or whatever, like, they, they got a purpose. And people often say, like, that attack the Bible and critique the Bible— they look at passages like this, well, this seems harsh. It's not harsh at all. It's actually a restraint. Because when someone does you wrong, you don't just want to do the same thing to them. You want to do above and beyond what they did to you. 
in gang, gangs with the cartels and things like that or any type of gangs of any sort, when one gang like stabs someone in this gang, that gang doesn't just want to stab someone back. They want to stab someone and shoot someone. It escalates. We don't retreat from revenge. We escalate revenge. So when God puts her an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a wound for a wound, a burn for a burn, he's just limiting it to equality in the consequence of action. It's actually a boundary. It's a restraint. And it's important to understand it that way because that's clearly what it is. There it is. That's the law. And the whole thing about a servant beating your servant, I don't claim to understand all this stuff. I just know that God is light. Him is no darkness at all. And when I see people, and I've seen people commenting, making fun of this stuff, I have. I've seen them. I just think, man, you're blaspheming. Just because you don't understand part of the law or the context of the law, don't attack it. Our God is a father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. And like Pastor Chuck used to say, when I come what I don't know, I fall back on what I do know. And God is good. And when I go through the law, there are parts that, like, I just don't understand, like, having a, a servant, you beat him, and they don't die for two days, but then they die, and you're not ac- accountable for it. I don't understand that, but God does. And it's not my job to judge the universe or humanity. My job is, job is to obey the Lord. And like I tell people when they have a problem with something like this, look, you should just focus on the Ten Commandments. Like, let God be God, and you be you. And it's not servants and things like that in chapter 21 that concern me with my life. What concerns me in my life is chapter 20 and trying to walk in the spirit to fulfill the Ten Commandments. Amen? Amen. It is. So it's all here for a reason, and these are good laws. Verse 28, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall be eaten. Shall not be eaten. So if an ox gores a man, or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and it shall not be eaten. It's just, it's done. But the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with his horns in times past, and had been known to his owner that he had not kept it confined, so that it killed a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. So that's great accountability. Like if you've got a dog that attacks people and, and you know, has killed animals and attacks a human being and kills them, which some dogs do, you're put to death makes sense if you ever had a dog take someone's life it would seem reasonable again it's a restraint it doesn't accentuate it but it equals it verse 30 but you can never bring the dead back so that's one of the things that's difficult about that verse 30 if there is imposed on him a sum of money then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him so you can buy your way out of it whether it is gore to son or gore to daughter according to this judgment it shall be done to him if the ox gores a male or female servant he shall give it to his master 30 shekels of silver which of course is the price of a slave and the ox shall be stoned. So any ox that took the life of a human being, it's not eaten. It's just, it's stoned, it's executed. No, it's defiled. Verse 33. And if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good, and he shall give money to the owner, but the dead animals shall be his. If one man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in times past and its owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox and the dead animal shall be his own. When you look at verses 28 through 36, just put accountability over that. It's accountability. It's accountability. Like we live in a time when no one wants to be accountable for anything. I actually really appreciate these verses because it's accountability. You're accountable for your animal. You're accountable for your car. You're accountable for having a car that's insured so when you get in an accident, 
your insurance covers it. You don't just run from the accident because you didn't have insurance. It's accountability. It's accountability. If you vote, you're a citizen. If you're not a citizen, you don't vote. It's accountability. This is a society of accountability, and God holds people accountable. And it's important that we understand that. We don't just have this free society to do whatever we want. No one gets away with anything in eternity, and God has things in his law right here to make sure that we're accountable in time, space, and matter to the benefit of society. What if no one's ever accountable for what they do? That's why you have insurance adjusters with car accidents. They figure out the accountability, and that's why you pay insurance. That's what you do. There's accountability for our actions. When I got in the car accident years ago with the church van, changing lanes without using my blinker on PCH, I held myself accountable. I changed lanes right there by Main Street, and I didn't use the blinker, and another car, which was at a red left arrow, came across, shouldn't have done, and we hit each other, sideswiped each other. They refused to accept accountability. I accepted accountability. The two insurance companies determined we're both accountable, and that's that, right? Accountability. It's a reminder that we're all accountable before the Lord for the life we live and the decisions we make. So this, in the social law, this is accountability for your property, for your assets, and what you sow, you reap, right? Did you see all that in here? Of course you did. So the moral law, Christ fulfills it, impeaches to us our account through faith, and then by the Spirit helps us to be those type of people that reflect these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the societal law here, the social law, is good for society, although they were in a covenant, we're not in a covenant. I don't see how you could implement this because there's no nation that's in a covenant relationship with God, but these are good principles overall in applying to government, which of course our founding fathers did with this country, by and large. They looked to the Bible. That's what we're called a Judeo-Christian society because a lot of the laws that we have, going back to Magna Carta with England and all these things, have this idea of God's law and accountability that comes from it. So we're not under this, but these are good things that we can look to and say, you know what, these are good principles and they're good for my life and I need to respect other citizens and I need to be an upstanding citizen that honors the Lord and honors the king as best I can.